how do we design data-intensive applications? In this round of cocktails, we talk to the co-founder of Reportive and author of the critically acclaimed book, Designing Data-Intensive Applications. We delve into the benefits of local for software, a project which aims to enable both software collaboration and ownership with the ability for users to work offline, while also improving the security, privacy, long-term preservation, and user control of data. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Welcome to episode 43 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. Joining me from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. Hi, Kevin. All right. And our guest for today is a researcher in distributed systems at the University of Cambridge. Previously, he was the co-founder of Reportive, which was acquired by LinkedIn in 2012. He's also the author of Designing Data Intensive Applications, described by the Chief Technology Officer of Microsoft as required reading for software engineers. He's a regular conference speaker, blogger, and open source contributor. He believes that profound technical ideas should be accessible to everyone, and that deeper understanding will help us develop better software. Sharing with us that deep understanding of software development in this episode is Martin Klepman. Hi, Martin. We're glad to have you on the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for that very kind intro. All right. So before we delve into the more technical stuff, can you please tell us about your role as Senior Research Associate and Affiliated Lecturer at the University of Cambridge? Yeah, it's, um, it's a role I sort of fell into by accident a little bit. Um, so it's a, I do a mixture of research and teaching. Research is the primary focus, um, which means uh, you know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking through algorithms or uh, trying to write some code, trying to make it better, and then writing those things up in the form of research papers. Uh, and trying to get those published. And I work with various collaborators. Um, and I can tell you a little bit more shortly about the, the sort of topics that we work on. Um, but before then, uh, I spent a little while full time writing my book, the book that you mentioned. And then before that, I was a software engineer uh, in industry. Uh, so I did the whole Silicon Valley internet companies thing. Uh, we started a startup that we moved to San Francisco and uh, were part of that's an uh, exciting ecosystem there for a while. How do you um, make that transition from having uh, those successful startups to a life in academia? Why would you, and, and what made you make that choice in transition? Yeah, it's, it's a slightly unusual thing to do. Um, for me, I think it was the right thing. So I, I enjoyed the startup time in terms of like getting practical hands-on experience of, uh, of building systems. But after a while, I also got a bit frustrated that it was all very short term. Like you're always just thinking like one week ahead, okay, what is the next thing we need to ship? What's our next sprint? Uh, you're always, or oh, you're fighting fires. Uh, you're, you're always, um, you know, very close to, to the, the, the next thing you're building. Whereas really what I was hoping for was something where I could think a bit longer term, have the luxury to, to actually try and attack problems that are hard and which will take some time to solve properly, but which will be valuable if we can solve them. And so, so yes, when I, I left LinkedIn then in 
2014 or so and uh, took a first of all took a year out as a sabbatical to work full-time on my book and during that time i i spent a lot of time reading mostly you know, background reading as research background research for the book and that sort of drew me into research a bit because i was you know i was doing one aspect of research at least which was understanding the literature of what what has already been said before um and I had these ideas for um, for technologies that I thought would help uh, help users gain better ownership over the data over the data that they create. And this is this idea is and it wasn't quite well formulated at the time, um, but you know I had this feeling that the cloud software was a bit of a dead end. You know, in a way, you know, cloud software has enabled so many wonderful things like. With Google Docs, we can real-time collaborate on a document. We don't have to send it back and forth as a Word document, as email attachment anymore. You can just have everyone log in and edit at the same time and make things so much more convenient. But at the same time, there's this risk that if Google decides to lock your account, then you're locked out of Google Docs and you're locked out of every document that you've ever created on Google Docs. And so all of your data is held hostage by Google in this case, essentially. and there's a huge risk that you know they might one day simply decide that some automated system decides you violated the terms of service. This happens all the time. Apparently, millions of Google accounts get get closed every year just on the basis of some automated system design decided that you violated the terms of service, and then that's it. You have no more access to anything you ever created in, in your Google account with no warning and, and no recourse. And 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 I thought that's that's really terrible and that wanting to solve that problem is part of what got me into research. So then I started looking at algorithms and techniques that would allow us to build collaboration software, in the, which behaves the same as Google Docs, has the same kind of convenience. You can have several people editing in real time and so on, but also which makes sure that every user has a copy of the data on their own computer where nobody can take it away from them. If it's a file on your own computer, you know, that's, that's something much more concrete, much more tangible, much safer than if it's first, just... The name implies that the, the, the file, first and foremost, exists on your local drive mm -hmm. and then it's being backed up to cloud storage. So that, I guess that's, we still have, you know, that sort of concept in a lot of applications today. So how is your concept of, as opposed to just a cloud backup, how does your concept differ from that? Yes, well, so nowadays, say you can have a file in Google Doc, in, in Dropbox, say, or in, in Google Drive. Um, so Dropbox or Google Drive doesn't really look inside that file. It just treats it as a sequence of bytes. And, and you can have a Word document or a Markdown document or any other file format you want in there. And as long as you are the only person who's editing it, then everything is fine. Life is simple. The problem starts arising when you've got several people contributing to the file. And uh, what happens, for example, if I modify the file and independently you also modify the file, and now we both save the file and what happens? And in the case of Dropbox, for example, what you get is a file conflict. Dropbox will detect the file that was modified by two different users at the same time. So it will give you two copies of the file, one containing your change and one containing your colleagues' changes. And now it's up to you to manually merge those two things back together again. Uh, so, so good luck. Maybe if you're lucky, your your software provides some kind of 
diffing view which allows you to compare the two files. Otherwise, it's going to be an extremely manual process, um, very labor intensive. And so that problem of having to do merges manually, we don't have that in, in Google Docs because Google Docs is constantly merging all of the users' changes automatically. And so we, are, we want to take that same concept of automatic merging of file versions. Um, a similar thing kind of happens in Git. So in Git, you know, each user can work off on their own branch. You can make a commit, even if you're not connected to the internet right now, you can just do that offline on your computer. You can make as many commits as you like. And then at some point you decide, okay, I'm ready to share my work. I'm going to push it to GitHub now, for example, or uh, make a pull request. And then the other people can decide to merge that in. Uh, again, we've got this kind of branching and merging type behavior here. Mm -hmm. And again, with Git, well, the merging can happen automatically. Like if you're editing two different files in the in two different pull requests, then Git will very happily merge those. Uh, if you're editing different parts of the same file, so I edit the top of the file, you edit the bottom of the file, then it'll probably still be able to merge those automatically. If you edit the same lines or very close by lines in the same file, then Git will give you a merge conflict and leave it to yourself to resolve. Mm. But all of this merging and merge conflict detection works only if when Git is working with plain text files like source code files. If you put any other file format into Git, like anything that Git would call a binary file, mm. it does no automatic merging because it doesn't understand the file format. And so again, you're back to this situation of having to merge files manually. And, you know, doing things as plain text is fine for software engineers, but people in the real life work on spreadsheets, say spreadsheets are not plain text, or they work on CAD drawing or the building plans, architectural building plans for a building, yes, or uh, the score for a movie, or those types of things. And, and, you know, you can't really well represent those things as, as plain text formats. Generally, there are going to be some sort of binary formats produced by some higher level software. And so where we're trying to get to with local first software is that all these different types of software that produce all these different file types can continue storing their data in files on the local disk. But when several people independently modify their files of those, their copies of those files, we can merge those together. And moreover, if several people want to work in real time together, then we can also enable that sort of real-time collaboration, which is something you don't really get, like, the, you know, the really character by character, see what somebody else is typing, real-time collaboration. And the cool thing is that we can actually do all of those things using just one programming model. So we have one technique, which is called CRDTs, which I can explain a bit more about if you're interested in. Mm -hmm. and, and that allows us to do all these nice things like real-time collaboration, but while storing the file on your local disk. It allows us to do asynchronous collaboration, which is the sort of Google Docs, uh, sorry, the Git style pull request type workflows, but with automatic merging. Um, it can allow us, uh, can allow users to work offline on their document and then merge with other users when they come back online again sometime later. Uh, it can even allow things like having several people in a remote location collaborating with each other over a local network, but with while they're disconnected from the wider internet. So just mm -hmm. using device to device communication like Bluetooth, that is also sufficient. You can, so that there don't have to necessarily be any servers involved in, in this type of software at all. And I found it really cool because it just enables so many new types of 
workflows and new types of applications and models for collaboration uh, that current cloud software does not have. And at the same time, it also is better for users because it reduces the risk of, say, a cloud vendor going out of business and then taking all of the data away with them. So how mature is the uh, system, the protocol to facilitate this? Is, it, is this something which is readily deployable today or is it still in a research phase? Where are you at? Um, it's, it's both, I would say. So there are some people putting it into production right now. Mm. Um, I should say also there, there are a number of implementations of the, these ideas. So there are a few CRDT libraries. I, CRDTs are really like the fun, foundational technology to enable this kind of automatic merging of different document versions. Um, the library that I work on is called AutoMerge. And uh, it's, it's just an open source library, which you can find on GitHub. It's currently got a JavaScript implementation and also a Rust implementation. Um, and we're thinking of using the Rust implementation then. Uh, we're currently moving to using that as the primary one. And so then you can combine all the Rust to WebAssembly and still use it from JavaScript. You can also compile it to native code and use it in mobile apps, for example, uh, based with a, a wrapper in Swift or a wrapper in Kotlin or a wrapper in Python or whatever languages people are using. Um, you mentioned it's an open source project. Are there commercial mm -hmm. applications for yourself or the university with this? So at the moment, there, there's no commercial interest behind it. Um, so it's, we are, as researchers, are maintaining it as, as mm -hmm. part of our research activities. We're not trying to make any commercial products out of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe one day the time will be right to try and commercialize it. Um, but I don't think we're quite there yet. So it's I'll be honest with you, it's still a fairly early stage technology. It, it works like we have a, a good test suite and it's pretty robust. Uh, it's a bit slow at the moment and it uses quite a lot of memory. So that's one of my main focus areas at the moment is just to improve the performance. Uh, right. There we, we have a long way to go, but also we have some very promising uh, approaches that we're trying. Um, so whether it's fast or not, not fast enough or not right now, it depends a bit on the application. So does do you see the best applications for it? Is it is it in that data privacy security type space, or is it in certain verticals like you mentioned CAD, for example? I can also imagine like you know when you're working on large Photoshop files and working in the cloud is not necessarily ideal. Some is there any sort of markets you see as a natural fit for it? It's it is quite broad, but of course we do need to start somewhere. Um, so one of the first production use cases that AutoMerge currently has, which I find quite interesting, is with the Washington Post, the newspaper. Mm. And so they've put AutoMerge into production in their internal tooling for updating the website. So, so their main website at WashingtonPost.com is, if you look at it, it's like a, several columns. In each column, there are articles. Each article may have an image or may not. It'll mm. have a headline with varying font size with varying text and maybe text underneath the headline, might be extra stuff. Uh, they might move the layout around or rejig it from time to time to, to based on what's happening in the news. And all of this layout is set up manually by, editor, by editors. And there's a team of editors working uh, around the clock at the New York Times that whenever some important news comes in, they will figure out where to slot it in on the homepage, what old news to take out and so on. And for this, they have their own in-house piece of software, 
that allows them to edit this. And they have, since they have several editors working on the homepage at the same time, they need a collaboration workflow. And moreover, they don't just want like one editor to do a click, make a change, and it's immediately live on the, on the live website. Instead, they have a review workflow where one editor can essentially accumulate some changes that they want to make on what you would call a private branch in Git. So they are kind of operating on their own private copy of the homepage and they can drag things around, see what it would look like. Uh, once they're happy with it, they'll click a button to request the review from a colleague. Mm. Uh, the colleague will then see what this person has done, will also see what people have done to other sections of the website. Like one people might be working on the news section, the other people might be working on the, on the sports section. And so we want to merge those edits together automatically. Uh, and at some point they decide, okay, right, we're happy with the layout now. And they hit the publish button and it goes out to the live website. That's a really so, nice use case. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. And what I find interesting about it is that it's, you know, it has a, quite a real-time collaboration element, mm. but it also has this element of like different users working in their own private copies for a mm. while. Uh, until they're ready to share their work. And then at the point where they're ready to share, they hit the button and it becomes part of a shared document. And mm -hmm. and using AutoMerge allowed them to seamlessly combine those worlds because, because AutoMerge is perfectly happy for you to have different branches and forks of a document and for different people to have different views for a while and then to reconcile those views uh, when you're ready to reconcile them. Very cool. Let's talk about your uh, book, The Designing Data Intensive Applications, published in 2017. Mm -hmm. And four years on, the book's still going well, leaving positive reviews on Amazon. It's obviously maintained its relevancy over the last four years. What do you think about uh, it is about the book that has made to sustain its relevancy today? Well, I, I was very uh, clear when I was writing it that I wanted to focus on the fundamentals uh, rather than on the latest fads of technology and and although like people say tech is so fast changing you know it's it's constantly changing one day to another there's a new javascript framework around the corner every six months um i found that actually the fundamentals change surprisingly slowly and a lot of the fundamentals of databases we're using now for example is still anchored in the 1970s and and some things have like are really shockingly similar to what were what was done in 1975 or so even though the underlying hardware has changed a lot and so what i've tried to do in this book is to give people a framework for figuring out which technologies they should be using for their particular project because you know there's so many different databases and data storage technologies and processing technologies and so on there. There's, there's a bunch of commercial projects. There's a bunch of open source projects. Everyone claims that they're the best at everything. Obviously, that can't be true because nobody is always the best at everything. You, you always have each project always has its strengths and weaknesses. But a lot of projects are not very good at articulating what their strengths and what their weaknesses are. And so what I wanted to try with this book is to really figure out, OK, what are the fundamentals like? Essentially, like if you want to store data, there might be three different primary ways how you can do it. There's uh, approach A, there's approach B, there's approach C. And then we can say, okay, let's categorize the products that exist. Okay, databases X, Y, and Z uh, store data according to approach A. Databases G, E, F, and H store 
data according to approach B and so on. And so this now kind of helps people build up a bit of a mental map of the landscape. And so uh, in that way, helping figure out like uh, roughly at least what set of products should you be looking at if you need a, if you have a system that, for example, either needs to store larges of batches of data quickly and then be able to query over them all, or have a system where data comes in only slowly, but then gets queried many, many times, or data where you've got data new writes coming in at a, at a fast rate, but they actually don't get queried that often, and so on. Like depending on what your access patterns are for a system and what your consistency requirements are and so on, there are ways of figuring out which tools are, are better for the job and which are less good at the job. And I think that's part of what has made this, this book useful to people is like, I, I don't try to teach people how to use a particular product because there's plenty of documentation out there. If, like if you want to learn all the features of Postgres, that's fine. Just read the Postgres documentation. It's perfect. Um, what I will try to do is to help you to figure out in which circumstances would you use Postgres versus in which circumstances some totally different database system. Yeah. Where did your passion for data come from? Was it your time with your startups with Reportive or uh, you, when you went to, with, to LinkedIn and their massive data sets with streaming services and the like? Where did all that come from? Yeah, I think... Um, Certainly, like when we were at Reportive, we were we're dealing with a moderately large data set at the time, and we did struggle with it a bit. Like we had a we had essentially this one big database that we tried to put everything in, and trying to get the performance of that database to be as uh, what we wanted was always a bit of a challenge. Uh, so then I started learning a bit more about techniques for scalability um, that would allow us to to grow that further and still do the kind of operations on that database that we needed to. And then when I got to LinkedIn, um, I started working on their stream processing efforts. Mm -hmm. So this was just in the early days of Apache Kafka. So Kafka had like just been made open source, um, but this was before Confluence spun out of LinkedIn and started to commercialize Kafka. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were just like in this exciting uh, time of trying to figure out how do you best use these tools? Like, okay, we've, we've got this, the streaming log abstraction provided by Kafka, what sort of processing primitives can we provide on top of it? How do we make them scalable and reliable? How do we make it such that it, LinkedIn was operating a pretty large data volumes for these things. So we wanted to be efficient and we want to make sure that we can just set up a job and have it run reliably without getting paged in the middle of the night and so on. So, so there's a lot of motivation comes from those sort of personal experiences of, of trying to build systems and then and then later trying to learn the lessons from building those systems. We've described uh, data intensive applications as they should be reliable, scalable and maintainable. So what approaches can people take to achieve this? Um, well, it's hard to give a very short answer because essentially the the book is a very long-winded 700-page answer to that question. But are there some basic principles that they should be looking at? As a basic principle, I would try to um, be very conscious of exactly the operations that are happening and how often they're happening and how they can best be enabled. And so um, so like for scalability, 
um, you know, scalability is not a one-dimensional product it, pro property. It doesn't make sense to say a system is scalable or non-scalable without saying what it's it's uh, scalable with respect to what. Like generally, scalability means like you can increase something. Uh, something might be the amount of data that it stores, or the number of queries it handles per second, or the number of distinct customers who are using it, or the number of concurrent users using it at any one time, or any of these various metrics of, of how busy the system is. And as that metric grows, you want the system as a whole to still provide reasonable performance. And then performance, again, is not a single property, but you could be measuring like, is it the latency of a request until a request gets a successful response? Is it the throughput in terms of, of like gigabytes per second? Uh, what what is your metric of performance that you're trying to optimize here? And so, so I think the uh, the whole domain of scalability essentially is is wanting to say, okay, if if I increase the load in a certain way, where load is defined in some way that makes sense for my application, then I want the performance to still remain good, where performance is defined in some way that makes sense for my application. And once you've broken it down like that, I think then you have a degree of clarity and then you can say okay what we're trying to do is just to store the maximum amount of data possible and we're not going to worry about how it's going to get queried or we're going to make sure that we make our queries really fast and so we need to make sure that our, our scalability is in the query layer and so on so so i think that's that's how i would approach this really because um these the questions are well like the the, the concrete steps that you would take to make an application scalable depend massively on what the application is and what it needs. But mm. the steps that you can take in order to figure out how to do that, they, they're repeatable. So the types of questions that you need to ask yourself, uh, and those are the sort of questions that the book tries to teach you to ask. And of course, you don't just talk about systems and architecture, you also talk about data models, which you've described as one of the most important parts of developing software. Run us through the importance of data models and your thought process behind those. Yeah, when, when people compare data systems, often data models are like the first thing they, they focus on because it's sort of the, it's just the most big, like it's just the thing up front, really. Um, so for example, when uh, say in the, there was a phase in 10 years ago or so when MongoDB came out and there were a bunch of other document databases um, that presented themselves as alternatives to the relational model. Hmm. And they were saying, okay, like it's much, nicer to group your data together into these JSON documents rather than uh, having it spread out across a bunch of rows in a relational database. Um, and this is a data model question, right? And and then like people looked at that and they said, yeah, okay, they're, like they're, they have some points there. But actually then over time, what we've seen is that these two different data models have converged somewhat. Um, and so a lot of Relational databases now actually have pretty good JSON support, mm. uh, Postgres and MySQL included. Uh, so, so actually, the the need for a dedicated de type of database to to handle the sort of document model data is not as pressing anymore now because other databases can actually do that. Conversely, in the other direction, some of the document databases have then started adopting relational style query languages because they realized that that is actually a really useful feature as well. So, 
so like for a while there was this phase where people said like relational and document oriented are like these enemies that uh they're, they're total opposites of each other and then it turned out that actually the two just merged and 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 more and more we don't even think of them as two different things but just two different aspects of a data model that may well be implemented in the same system mm-hmm. and it goes we can apply similar arguments with other types of data models as well. So like a graph data model is, is another one that I quite like. I've, I'm personally quite a fan of graphs because I find them a very flexible way of describing data, uh, like relationships between things. Um, in particular, graphs tend to be very extensible. So if you want to add a new property to something or a new type of relationship between different entities, it's very easy to do that. Um, but how do you represent a graph? Well, you can represent a graph on top of a relational database, for example. That's that's perfectly fine. You don't have to necessarily need to have a, a specialist graph database. A specialist graph database might be able to do some things faster than a, than a relational database, like if you want to do some shortest path queries, for example, or, or other kind of uh, queries that depend on variable length paths through through a data set. Those are things that that SQL databases don't currently support very well, but they do kind of support as well. Um, and so there again, I, I feel like, okay, we've got this graph data model, which is which is a useful, interesting contrast to the relational model, but at the same time, there's also a bit of convergence going on where, where databases essentially stealing the, the best ideas from other data models and incorporating that. And graph I, data I, models have been around for a while, but they don't mm-hmm. seem to have sort of gone mainstream. Like they still seem to be, have a certain segment of the market, as opposed to uh, you know, SQL data models, which obviously dominate. And uh, you mentioned NoSQL uh, type JSON data models, which obviously come big in the last 10, 15 years. What, what, what is it about uh, the graph data model, which hasn't seen sort of the same type of adoption? I'm not sure really, um, because my feeling is that it's actually a really good fit for for a large class of applications, and certainly uh, a lot of the like the big companies um, that that publish about their the way they structure their data have adopted graph data structures. Uh, like Facebook, for example, is quite vocal about the fact that like everything they have, everything they store is essentially a graph, mm. and so. You know, when you uh, type an update or if you like an update written by somebody else, that like is an edge in a graph between yourself and the update that you liked. And uh, the update that you liked has uh, an edge in the graph to the person who wrote it and also to the three other people who are tagged in that update. And then from there, you have an edge to, to the picture that's included in the update, which then indeed has a, a, a link to the uh, the vertex representing the location where that picture was taken, and so on. And you, you know, it's it, this stuff fits beautifully easily into a graph, and uh, and because it's a graph, Facebook can add new types of entity uh, in, into the system quite easily, and, and and maintain all of all of this sort this sort of rich interaction information, and my sense is that a lot of enterprise apps could could really take a similar approach there. Um, well, you, you, in the final chapter of your book, you, you dedicate a chapter to the future of data systems. Um, are, are we executing on that future, do you think? Or has, it, has your vision for the future changed? There are, yeah, so I, 
I explore a, a whole bunch of um, more speculative ideas in, in that chapter, and some aspects are definitely happening. So, so what I what I was trying to think through there is what does a world like look like in which streaming data flows become more the center of of how we design systems, and the reason I was thinking about that is if you think about a typical database query. Um, I want to know um, how many socks are in stock right now of a particular color. So I make a query to the database and I get back, okay, there are currently five pairs of socks in stock. And then what happens if that changes? Well, the, the database doesn't tell me if that number changes. If somebody buys two pairs and now there are only three pairs left in stock, the only way I can find that out is by repeating my query and then I'll find out the new result. But there's no way that the system can notify me as, hey, you earlier queried about the socks, but you know that the stock level for stocks has now changed. You might want to, you might want to know about that. And so this, uh, this uh, queries, database queries are stuck, still stuck in this very request response type model. And likewise, most of the APIs that we use now, save REST APIs for microservices, have that exact same request response model where you make a request to service, you get a response back, but then if the response subsequently becomes outdated, there's no way of finding out other than polling. Keep polling, polling again to see if something has changed. Polling is super inefficient. So really, we would like some way of getting notified when stuff changes. Um, and that notification really needs to go through all of the layers of the stack all the way up to the mobile app or the web browser the user is using. Because why would you want stale data being displayed on somebody's simply screen, right? If you have the ability to update in real time what, what some information, some information that came from a database, it went through various levels of being rendered and being going through business processes and stuff. Eventually, it ended up in HTML on somebody's screen. And really, if that information goes out of date, it would be nice to be able to push an update all the way up to the user's screen to reflect the, the change that has happened. Mm. And very few systems are currently set up in the way to really allow those changes in data to be propagated through all of the layers of the stack. Like you get streaming systems now built in a few narrow niches. So one thing that is becoming quite popular is something called change data capture, where if you have a database, uh, you don't just like write your data to the database and read from it again, like usual but you also capture a stream of all of the changes, all of the updates that are written to the database. And that stream can then be put in something like Kafka, where you can subscribe it and you can have a bunch of consumers that decide what to do with that information then. And maybe they will update a cache or maybe they'll update a search index, or maybe they will uh, do some analytics, or maybe they will notify something else that, that some data has changed, whatever it is. At least there's now, the ability to respond to changes written to a database. But this is still quite a far way away from this like bigger idea of, okay, we don't just capture the changes from the database. Next step is now we push it through all of the layers of the stack, which are currently just probably REST APIs or other kinds of RPC, which don't really support a streaming type data flow. Um, can we, you know, can you take something out of the book of these real-time collaboration apps that we were talking about earlier, such as Google Docs? Google Docs has the ability to update in real time on somebody else's screen when something changes in the underlying document. 
why don't we have that sort of capability for absolutely all software? All software can update immediately live on the screen when something changes in the underlying data. That's going to be hard to get to because so much of our software stack is currently based on this request response paradigm yes. and changing that is going to be a very big job. So I don't expect this thing to be fully realized in even the next 10 years, I think, because it's, it's just a bit too much of a jump for people. But I do think it's a very interesting idea to pursue and, and you know, maybe bits of it will be put into practice. And, and at least if it inspires people to think a little bit differently about their systems, then maybe it'll still have some effect. Martin Kletman, super, super interesting stuff. You're working on some very interesting things and have very interesting ideas. How, how can our listeners uh, follow you and hear what you're writing about and talking about? Um, well, I, I have a Twitter at MartinKL, uh, which you're welcome to follow if you like. I occasionally write blogs, uh, only like a few, a few blows to gear, but I try to go into some detail when I do write something. So uh, on my blog, martin.kletman.com, uh, you can also find an uh, email sign-up form so that you get a, a little email when I write a new post. And finally, like if you're interested in supporting this kind of thing financially, so I did set up a Patreon account uh, with the goal of trying to turn this into a sort of um, potential career of an you know independent researcher, not tied to any institution necessarily, but just being able to continue doing the research and the teaching work that I do, perhaps writing new books. Uh, and the second edition of my current book is, is potentially in the works. Um, so those types of things, um, if you're interested in that and have a bit of money to spare, you're very welcome to chip in. And I, I send detailed updates to my supporters every month on what the latest work is that has been happening. So it's also a way for you to kind of get a front row seat in, in the research process and see how these kind of things happen internally and you know how the sausage gets made. Uh, so if you find that sort of in thing interesting, then, then you might find the, the Patreon interesting. Good stuff. And of course, data, designing data intensive applications available on amazon.com as well. Martin Kletman, thank you very much for joining us today and uh, wish you well on those future projects. We'll get, Great. We'll thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!